this morning, we are going to be in the incredibly short letter of Philemon. And, um, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, so Philemon is um, just a letter I didn't want to just pass over because I believe the message that we find within the very short, like, 25 verses is one of the hardest messages that us as believers probably struggle with in our daily lives. And um, it's an emotion that I think we can all relate to. Actually, psychologists call it a very cold emotion. Um, It's an emotion that can cause uh, depressive episodes, antisocial behavior, anywhere from self-harm to changing the entire dynamics of family. And we're talking about forgiveness and reconciliation. And it's a extremely difficult thing for some of us. And I think that's what makes the letter of Philemon so important because Paul is able to explain the importance of forgiveness and reconciliation, not necessarily in the sense that we think of um, in a very short letter. So if you would go ahead and turn there and uh, we're just going to kind of unpack a little bit of it this morning. And uh, like I said, I just didn't want to just pass over this letter uh, just because of the message that's just contained in, like I said, the short verses. Um, And not only that, but also to point out even the location of the letter within our Bibles, like in the order that it's in, I think is rather interesting. Now, granted, obviously, whenever this letter was written, we didn't have the Bible as we see today, and the order doesn't necessarily have any meaning whatsoever. Um, You know, it's like, even like the numbers in your verses don't actually have meaning. They're just, you know, that was thought up later kind of thing. But it's, it's like Philemon was kind of placed in our Bibles as kind of this practical example on how to live out some of the messages that we found in all of Paul's epistles leading up to that moment. And I think that that's kind of interesting. It's found just right before Hebrews, if you're having trouble finding that. And uh, so the letter of Philemon was written and uh, delivered the same time the letter to the Colossians was uh, delivered. Um, in fact, it's... Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Paul like, kind of saved postage, if you will, and put them both in the same envelope when they were delivered. Um, and this was around 60 AD, around in there, okay? And uh, Paul is writing this letter, and he is currently in prison and in Rome whenever uh, he's writing this. And he's writing to a what he calls a very dear friend, and that is Philemon. And the entire point of the letter is Paul trying to fix this relationship, if you will, between Philemon and a runaway slave named Onesimus. And it's the focus of that relationship that we're going to be kind of talking about this morning. Now, just to kind of talk a little bit more about who Onesimus was, yes, we know he was a runaway slave. Um, as one commenter put it, he was a runaway slave that probably stole from Philemon, um, in which case you would say, well, he's a runaway slave. So just for the fact that he left, he stole because he and himself is the property. So um, if you think of it that way, that he was property to Philemon, okay? And... Um, The strange thing was, is Onesimus runs and finds himself in Rome and just happens upon, if you will, Paul. Now, just to put this in perspective, Rome at this time in the first century was roughly a million people. So that would be like you randomly stumbling upon someone in Dallas, Texas, that you have a mutual acquaintance with in Holt Summit, 
Like just the numbers are just crazy how this would have worked. And a lot of people would use that as this idea that this was God's sovereign move to bring these two men together in order for eventually this letter to be written for all of us to you know, acquire this message. <clears throat> and that's one way. Another way, and we don't necessarily have proof either way, is that Onesimus ran to Rome specifically to find Paul. Um, Paul would have been around, obviously, with his master, Philemon. He would have potentially heard the teaching. So he ran to Rome to actually find Paul. Either way, it doesn't necessarily take away the message of what we're going to find in the letter and specifically what we find in the opening of the letter, which we're going to talk about here first, because uh, there's even a lot there. We do know that Paul and Philemon were friends. And this isn't a, a, a friendship as in like a subordinate or anything like that but actually friends. And we see this in the opening of the letter. It says, To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker. In the ESV, now in the NIV, it actually takes it a step further. And if you have that translation with you, you could read it. It would say, To Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker. So we get it from the very opening, that this is a, this is a friendship that Paul is trying to speak into. It doesn't matter which translation you have, either ESV or NIV, there is something very important missing, missing from the opening of this letter. And it's the word apostle. In most of Paul's other letters that we find in Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Colossians, uh, 1 and 2 Timothy, Titus, Paul always introduces himself as an apostle. He says, like, Paul, a servant of Christ and an apostle to uh, called to be an apostle, excuse me, is how he usually introduces himself in these letters. But in this particular one, that's missing. But why is that? Is there, was there even a reason or did he just forget to put it in? Like, is there a reason behind this? And I would say that, yeah, there probably is a reason behind this because in order for us to kind of talk about this, let's first think about again, what, when we think of apostle, what that means. And we talked about it a little bit last week, uh, David mentioned it and he brought up a slide and everything. And it says, apostle is one who is sent. Okay. Now, um, apostle, like many other words in Hebrew and Greek and everything like that, can have multiple meanings, multiple layers and everything like that. That's why it's always super important to read words in the context of either the book or the chapter. Now, if we want to call ourselves a Bible teaching church, you know, we would not do our due diligence to point out how, you know, words can have different meanings and stuff like that. Okay, so when we read the opening of Paul's letters and he refers to himself as an apostle, what he is saying there is one who is sent with authority given to him by Christ over that church. Okay? So if someone were to be reading this letter and they read that and say, Paul, an apostle, everything like that, they would then recognize as they are reading all the words in that letter that this is coming from a place of authority over the church. Okay? But we understand, or we see that's actually missing in the letter to Philemon. And it's very different because Philemon's also a letter written to an individual. And yes, we have those in others, right? We have Timothy and we have Titus. But Paul is, when in those letters, is speaking to them about the idea of raising, you know, uh, uh, leadership, helping them through situations like that. This is Paul writing a letter to a specific person about a specific situation and not doing it with the authority of an apostle. He's doing it as a friend. 
And Paul unpacks this actually a little bit more in verses 8 through 9. And he just actually just kind of flat tells us that. So in Philemon uh, chapter 1, verses 8 through 9, he says, Accordingly, so I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul understands that Philemon has every right over Onesimus. And Paul recognizes that he has the authority to tell Philemon what to do with the relationship. He's recognizing both. He's not skirting the issue or anything like that when he comes to this. He's saying, I don't want to command you. Because he understands that any reconciliation, any forgiveness that would happen between two, these two men that would be, appear to be forced upon would not be correct, would not be the right way to do it. So instead he appeals to him. And it's really funny how, how Paul unpacks this because he's very delicate in how he writes things. In verse 15, you know, so we, we know that Onesimus right, is a runaway slave, but in verse 15, Paul doesn't say uh, that he runs away or that he left or that he escaped. He just simply uses the word, he parted from you. It's not even the word departed. Like there, there's no like negative condensation of, of what Paul's trying to say here. It just simply says, he parted from you. I say he's trying to choose his words very, very specifically and be very delicate in how he writes. Let's go ahead and read more. Philemon 1, verses 15 through 16, as we continue to unpack this relationship here. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. Paul writes delicately because this is a very tense situation. You see, in first century Rome, slaves, like I mentioned earlier, were personal property, but it also means that as the owner, he would have had any, he would have the right to do just about anything he wanted to the slave. Slaves were killed for less than this. Um, I was reading a story just kind of as I was like just researching this of a <clears throat> Roman man that had a slave that uh, he, he broke like it was either glass or crystal, depending on the translation, goblet. That's all he did. He would, was walking, it fell, it broke. And the guy had the slave thrown into a pond full of flesh-eating fish. That was his punishment for breaking a glass. So when, whenever we talk about that Philemon has the right to do whatever he wants, like that's what we're talking about. Crucified, throwing him a pond of flesh-eating fish. Like he has every right to do this kind of thing just because the slave ran away. And in a sense, stole money from him. The law is, is written this way because at this particular point, a third of the population in Rome were slaves. So there was this big fear of a revolt could happen any moment. And I mean, that's a lot of people to come up against. Like a third were slaves and probably two thirds of those used to be slaves. <laughs> you know, so they would be people that would you know, understand where they were coming from and might even take their side. So we had to give the property owners the right to do whatever they want for a fear factor to keep them under control. But Paul knows in order to move forward, this relationship has to be mended. And he sends Onesimus back to Philemon. 
making a case, not as an apostle, not as someone with authority, but making a case simply with two words. Beloved brother. That's Paul's case. That's Paul's argument. To receive Onesimus as a beloved brother. He goes on to say, right, especially to me, but how much more to you? Paul's saying, I need you to understand the opportunity here. I need you to see that this relationship between you and your bond servant has progressed to more than anything that he is indebted to you, than anything has, he has stolen from you, that it is an eternal relationship that at this point represents the kingdom. He is no longer just a servant. He is your brother. I think it's important to say, as we talk about this, when we as Christians call ourselves brother or sister, and, and maybe you're not, you didn't grow up in that kind of church, but, but I did. Every, everybody was brother this or sister that and everything. And um, when, when you hear a Christian, maybe you've not been around uh, Christianity, maybe you've not really been around church and whatever you hear that, that it just doesn't make sense to you. It's like, I don't understand, what, what do you mean by brother? You're like you, you barely know this person, right? It's like when, when we as Christians say, hey, brother Jimmy or, you know, sister Cheryl, when we say stuff like that, The underlying message that we're saying there is that we are now part of the same family. We are under the sonship of Christ because of what he did on the cross, right? He died on the cross through his blood, through his sacrifice, has gathered us together as one family, sonship under God. We look to him, he is our father, and we are now a family under Christ, brothers and sisters. And so when we say, Brother Keith, what I mean by that, by, hey, Brother Keith, I'll see you in two million years because our relationship is eternal under Christ, right? So whenever Paul is saying words like beloved brother, he means that he is no longer this person. He is now under the sonship of Christ. He is with you in the family of God. And that's what he's saying. That's, that's the appeal that he's making. The eternally bound relationship that we find as believers. Let's go over to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. And we read this, <clears throat> excuse me, with, um, <clears throat> sorry, when we, when we read this, I think it's, we classically, let me put it that way, we classically read 2 Corinthians 5 one way, but we're going to read it this morning in light of the story that we're seeing in Philemon, okay? And let, let's just read through verses 16 through 18 real quick, and then we'll, we'll talk about it. Verse 16. <clears throat> From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh. We regard him thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All, <clears throat> all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Now, oftentimes we read that, and you know, I think we even like to implant it onto ourselves mostly. Um, and, oh, maybe that's just me, but we like to implant it onto ourselves. Like, I'm a new creation, right? The old has gone away, the new has come. I don't do the things I used to do. Thank, thank God, right? And, you, and, and that's in there, 100%, right? That we are now new, right? We, we use the word we, or we can say, I am now a new creation, therefore these old things are gone, everything like that. But in order for this to be true, right? That I am a new creation. The old is gone. You don't look, I don't look at myself in the flesh anymore. I consider myself in the spirit, right? In order for this to be true, that means I also have to look at my brother no longer in the flesh. I have to look at my brother or sister as a new creation in Christ. We are now reconciled together. The old is gone and the new has come. We no longer live in an old flesh relationship, right? We no longer regard one another. We are no longer regarded according to the flesh. We are now regarded according to the spirit. Forever linked, eternally bound. Therefore, what do we always say about therefore? What is the therefore, therefore, right? Right? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us, right? Therefore, he has given us, skip it down, the ministry of reconciliation. If we now no longer regard each other as the flesh, if a new has come, right? Let's say Keith way back when really, really harmed me in some way, everything. But now he has come and he is a new creation. And this is the hard part. He is now new. I can no longer regard him according to the flesh, but I regard him according to our eternally bound relationship. So now how our relationship moves forward from here on out is a ministry of reconciliation. That means people are watching how we interact. How are we reconciled? How are we now together? I think as we are using words like reconcile and reconciliation, it'd be good for us to just understand kind of what we mean by those words, okay? So I don't know if we have any like numbers type people, okay? Or like accounting, okay? So we can start there a little bit maybe. Um, so whenever we think about the reconciliation as far as in accounting terms, right? Is it a process that compares two sets of records to check that the figures are correct and in agreement, Okay, very, pretty simple, right? Let's look at maybe more of a biblically idea, okay? Is the work of God through Christ by which he restores mankind to a favorable relationship with himself? All right, there's two. Did we already have up? Good. So if we kind of combine them a little bit, just for the people who understand, like, they, like to uh, think of this as like more of a debt type terms, okay? <clears throat> Excuse me. We can combine a little bit and then we get this. God clearing the debt of our trespasses and sin through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection in order to restore our relationship with himself and each other. And each other. Okay? So when we're talking about a ministry of reconciliation, when we're talking about being reconciled, 
It's both, right? We're being reconciled. Our relationship with God is repaired and our relationship with each other should be repaired. It's both, okay? <clears throat> and I'm sure, you know, like we, we started out before, right? We said this is one of the hardest things for not, not just Christians, but people in general to do, right? Is no longer look at each other as according to the flesh or just forgiveness in general or just being reconciled in general is some of the hardest stuff that we would ever have to deal with. And I'm sure there's people out there right now just think it's like, well, you don't know my situation. You don't know what was done to me. You're right. I have no idea what was done with you. I, I have no idea. I, I actually, I like the quote from C.S. Lewis when he says, forgiveness is a really great thing until you have someone to forgive. And it's uh, the first time I read that, I went, wow, <laughs> like that, that kind of hurts a little, you know? It's like forgiveness is a really great thing until you have someone to forgive. Now all of a sudden, like, mm, I'm not interested in that, <laughs> you know? It's like, and it's not like I would come up here and say that I do this perfectly. Do I hold grudge? Oh, yeah, you better bet. I, there's still stuff that I have trouble letting go of. There's still stuff that I probably hold a grudge to. And the unfortunate truth is there's some grudges I hold on to that I will never be able to reconcile this side of the grave. And that's just the hard truth. But we're not up here to follow Adam. I'm not up here to tell you how I do it. I'm up here to tell you what Christianity is. And Christianity says to forgive. Christianity. I mean, thank God you don't have to follow me. Thank God that the shepherds of the church say, look to Christ. Because we're not going to be able to be a, good, a great example for this necessarily. I like to think we will be, <laughs> you know. But ultimately, look to Christ and his words. And speaking of that, we're going to read some of his words. whenever Because it, it's hard to skirt away this idea of forgiveness and reconciliation when Christ says it multiple times. Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Here's a big one. And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And second is like it, which means equal, right? You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Luke eleven four. And forgive us our sins, for we ourselves forgive everyone who is indebted to us. Matthew 5, 43 through 44. You have heard that it is said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. You can't get away from this, <laughs> right? For forgiveness is great until you have to do it. It's a hard thing, but that's what Christianity is. That's what following Christ looks like. It's hard to read these verses and not immediately understand Jesus is concerned with our relationships. He's concerned about relationships, first and foremost. Because our relationships directly reflect the kingdom. In fact, I'll, I'll go so far to say this. Every relationship you have is an eternal relationship. Every single one. And you're either going to have an eternal relationship with somebody with God, or they're going to have an eternal separation from God. Every relationship is eternal. So if we have the ministry of reconciliation, how we deal with one another matters. The cost of a careless life is a conversation. I'm going to say that again. The cost of a careless life is a conversation. Meaning that when we struggle 
to let go of things, when we struggle to answer the words of Jesus, as he is saying here, when we struggle to let go of things, when we hold strife to one another, when we have hatred with one another, when we you know, talk bad about, when we gossip, all of these other things, it kills the witness. It's careless. Because what you do, you may think what you do in private or how you treat your wife in private or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or your kids, whatever you do, you think it only deals with you, but it doesn't. If we are truly one body, as we teach, we are all connected. And that means the good and the bad. When you go home and yell at your kids and everything like that, I'm really making people feel bad this morning, right? Uh, But when you go home and do these kinds of things, that reflects on the kingdom, which in turn reflects on everyone here. But if we view everything as an eternal relationship, we're allowed to have those conversations because people start asking questions. People see a church like we found in Acts 2 where they were giving away everything and showing nothing but love for one another. And people start going, whoa, what's going on with this group? And the church grows. But when you live carelessly, the cost of that is a witnessing conversation to someone else. Our eternal relationships matter. Excuse me. <clears throat> we know that Onesimus is one of the ones that helped deliver the letter because he's mentioned Colossians 4, verses 8 through 9. He says, I have sent him to you for this very purpose, meaning somebody else, but that you may know that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And then verse 9 he says, And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother. He was one of you. So Paul doesn't just call Onesimus a beloved brother in this private letter to just his friend. He does it to the whole church of the Colossians, right? Because this would have been one that was read in public. Likely, actually, both of them were read in public eventually, but But now the whole church is involved, right? So it's not just a relationship between Philemon and Onesimus. The whole church is involved in restoring this relationship. If you will, just go through this scenario with me just a little bit here, okay? So these two letters arrive, more than likely delivered to Philemon because he was the rich guy that hosted the church, okay? And I don't mean that to be like derogatory. It's just, I mean, that's how it was, right? So, and probably delivered to him because it was his house, right? So he opens the letter. One of them is the letter of the Colossians that we have here. The other one being the letter specifically to Philemon. And I think potentially his initial reaction would have seen the letter that was written specifically to him and understood immediately that it was important. Why? Because letters were expensive. Letters were expensive. And Paul wouldn't have written the letter if he didn't think that it was important to write. So Philemon maybe at at this point, right, would have read the letter in private first. Okay? So he's reading through this letter and he gets this message from Paul, him saying, hey, usually 
I write letters and I'm trying to help the church and I, I make sure that they remember that I, I, I'm the leader here and like I'm the apostle, I'm the one that has authority and, and you need to understand that this is what you need to do with your church. But Philemon, in my letter to you, I'm not saying that. I'm writing a letter specifically to you about another specific person that we both know. You may remember him. His name was Onesimus. I don't know if you know this guy. But I'm sending him back to you. And I pray that you'll do the right thing and receive him as a brother in Christ, knowing that he is now a new creation. You no longer look to him according to the flesh, but accept him as a beloved brother and friend. And I pray that you do this, right? So Philemon's reading this letter and maybe he hasn't even made his decision yet at this particular point. But then they gather as a church and they start to read the other letter. And eventually they get to Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. And I want to read this um, out loud right now. And I just want to put yourself, or have you put yourselves in the, the shoes of Philemon and understand all the events that are just taking place, right? This, the, your, my runaway slave has just come back and he's more than likely Onesimus was sitting in the congregation at the time of this being read. And I don't know, maybe they're making eyes at one another or whatever, right? But that's the situation that's happening. And let, let's read through this real quick and just picture this in your head. <clears throat> he, as in Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. And you, all of you, speaking to the church, you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless above reproach before him. You, all of you, that includes Philemon, that includes Onesimus sitting in the room, all of you. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and I of which, and of which I, excuse me, Paul, became a minister. This is the gospel. Paul just lays it out. This is the gospel. And understands that because of Christ, we are reconciled one to another. And we ask ourselves at this point, well, I wonder what Philemon did. Did it work? Did Paul convince him? And we don't necessarily have clear evidence one way or the other, but we have some clues. And some of them are 
fairly obvious. First clue would be, yes, it worked because the letter exists. The letter exists. If Philemon did not care to take on Paul's message and take it to heart and agree with him, I don't know if you've ever read like um, a letter that you know just really upset you. I don't know. Maybe it's like your bake statement. Maybe something like that. You throw it away, right? But that's not what happened. A letter this big, <laughs> and it was kept, and not just kept, kept long enough to make it into our Bibles, into our New Testament, to where we get to read it now. If there was not value on both ends, both Paul writing it and Philemon receiving it, and the message. It wouldn't be here. Number two, this is not necessarily the same person, but we do know that later on there was an Onesimus that became the bishop of the church of excuse me, the church in Ephesus. And he became the bishop. Is it the same Onesimus? Christian tradition would say yes. But when you put our relationships in the perspective of what we read in Colossians 1, we understand that we are to look to Christ, his authority, and all man just created in the heavens that are visible, the invisible, the thrones, the dominions, the rulers, the authorities, and Christ is over all of it. And it's because of him we can call each other brother and sister. And we get to live in the hope and the certainty that in a million years, we get to hang out and worship God. So as we finish up, I'm going to have Nathan come back up. Apart from, apart from Christ, apart from the gospel, we don't have a shot in these relationships. Because only through the power of his spirit within us, that keeps the flesh at bay. And it is only through the spirit of Christ that we become a new creation to begin with. And he understands that above all else, forgiveness is what's important. And whenever he means forgiveness, he means reconciled right to both God and each other. Even so far that in Mark 2, 5, whenever the paraplegic comes down, the first thing he does is not heal him, but forgives him of his sin. Because he understands that's what's important. And that is what we need, is a right, eternal relationship with God and each other. And I understand that these are hard things. And I struggle with them as well. But I think it's important that we recognize that how we reconcile with one another and our relationships with one another matter more than just the two people involved. Every relationship is an eternal relationship and every relationship can reflect the kingdom if you see the opportunity. <laughs>